gives us. So um, if you want a digital copy, there's the QR code. I just handed out physical copies, so that slide is fairly mute at this point, <laughs> but there it is. Uh, so gifts of hidden manna, white stone with a new name, which is the things that we're looking at. These are Jesus' gifts to us. Uh, what's the significance of those? So, And we just want to remember the outline for Revelation. Jesus' outline is to write what was seen, Revelation 1. Write what, what, what is, Revelation 2 and 3. And write what will be, uh, Revelation 4 through 22. And what will be is the judgment of Christ, uh, judgment of God upon the world. It comes in seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. So, Revelation 2.17 says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Fun stuff tonight. So uh, we're looking at hidden. <laughs> You're so funny. <laughs> so we're looking at hidden manna, white stone, and secret names. Okay, and we're going to talk about this stuff. We're going to start with manna. <laughs> What's so special about these gifts from Jesus? So, um, well, we're going to find out. Uh, the hidden manna, all right? So by t finding out about the hidden manna, we got to look at what? <laughs> that's right. We got to look at, at manna. And I'm not in a hurry. If I don't finish tonight, then that's okay. We'll finish next week. That's what I decided. So instead of just like dump trucking you with a whole ton of information, we'll... <laughs> so let's, uh, let's turn to Exodus chapter 16. Uh, 15 through 19, it'll be on the screen there, so, but if you wanted to look at it in your Bible. So, uh, this is the first appearance of manna. Remember, they're in the wilderness, they're wandering around because they've been disobedient, right? And when the people of Israel saw it, they said to one, one another, what is this? <laughs> okay, uh, in Hebrew, man, for they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. Bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall not take an omer. Each take an omer according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent. Okay? So they're picking it up off the ground. And obviously it's not getting too dirty. Go figure that one out. I had to throw in a blanket out. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more and some less. But when they measured it, an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered a little had no less. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. Okay? And what are they doing to it? They're gathering it, and then they're going to eat it. Okay, it's important. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till the morning. So don't store it. It's just for that day. So, manna, <laughs> what is it? It's man in Hebrew. So they named it, what is it? That's what manna means. What is it? Okay. That's really enlightening. That doesn't tell us a whole lot, does it? No. 
going to get more enlightening as we go. It's bread from heaven, right? Who, who provided it? God did. And it came from the sky, right? Uh, yeah. It appeared, yeah. Now the house of Israel is called, has called it the name man or manna. It was like coriander seed and it was white. And the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. That tastes good. It's like a good source of carbs. Probably the only healthy carbs out there. I don't know. That tastes funny. I got it. Yeah, probably look kind of like hail. Yeah, coriander seed's pretty small. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations so that they may see the bread which... I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. So what are they doing here? They're keeping some of it. Why? To show. Yeah. And Moses and so and Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omel of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept through your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. Do you think they want you to know that they kept it and they placed it? I mean, we're, it's like said it like three different times, right? The people of Israel ate the manna 40 years until they came to the habitable land. They ate the manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. Right? Now, in the land of Canaan, the, the, the beautiful land is also a picture of heaven. So that's kind of an interesting thing because now it's flipped. When we get to heaven, we're eating some kind of manna, right? Decadent manna. Okay. So where is the manna placed? Anybody know? You want to say? From what we just read, where is the manna placed? What about one of the cornfields? In a jar. The saved manna is placed in a jar before, before the Lord. Uh, yeah, and it, that passage does not explicitly say the ark, but we will have other ones that say it that it's placed in the ark. And it makes sense that it's in the ark because where's the ark? Before the Lord, right? So it's placed by this text before the Lord, okay? And it's placed there. Uh, why? Why is it placed there? As a remembrance, yeah, for generations. It's there, to be, it's there to be kept there as a memorial of God's provision, his sustenance. And you got to remember, how much manna did they get? Each day they had manna. Okay? And so to keep in mind that sustenance idea, keep in mind that provision idea, okay? Because these are thoughts and, and things that we're going to bring into the Revelation passage, okay? Numbers 11, 7 through 8 says, Now manna was like coriander seed, and its appearance was that of like bedellium. Bedellium is a sap that they harvest from a Middle Eastern uh, tree. It's kind of yellowish. Um, it's like gum. Um, that's what the word they used in Hebrew. Uh, the Septuagint uses uh, a word like rocks, uh, rock crystals, or like clear ice. Um, so just file that away because that's going to come up again. The people went about and gathered it and ground it into hand mills or beat it in mortars and boiled it in pots and baked cakes of it. And the taste of it was like the cakes, taste of cakes baked with oil. So what are they doing? They're eating it. They're processing it. Yeah. 
and the manna ceased the day after they ate the produce of the land of Canaan, okay? And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate the fruit of the land of Canaan, that, you know, the promised land. That's what the land of Canaan is, is the promised land, okay? The promised land is a symbol of heaven, paradise, okay? What was the purpose of manna in the wilderness? What was it there for? To provide. It was God's sustenance in a barren land. Okay? So that's what it was there for. It was provided for the people. All right. So Hebrews 9, 3 through 4, this gets to what Rick was saying. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. And having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden horn holding the manna. Now we're tracing this. Hebrews was written eighty eighty, well, maybe mid sixty-five AD. So, okay. And Aaron's staff that budded in the table tablets of the covenant. Okay. Now, how many temples are there going to be? I mean, how many temples have there been? Two. And how many will there be? Four. Yeah. And there's a third earthly temple coming, right? Going to be built. And then a heavenly temple. Okay. So, uh, question. In the second temple, was the Ark of the Covenant there? What? No. It wasn't there. The Ark of the Covenant was missing from the, what? <laughs> it's in Germany. Yes, yes. Oh, man, that's a fun movie. But no, probably not. Uh, we're going to get some interesting things. So, no, it wasn't in the Second Temple, right? It wasn't in the uh, temple built by uh, Zerubbabel, right? Um, it wasn't in that temple that was rehashed and re vamped and improved by Herod the Great. That's how we really know that second temple. It wasn't there, right? So it's hidden. It's lost, okay? That's just part of the facts. They knew that, okay? Yes. So he... Right, and I, I think that's a problem because of the holiness of God and without the mediation of Christ, right? They might, they might have some rites where they brought it out, like, and they would show, yeah. But, yeah, the most holy place, who goes on there once a year? Only one person goes in there once a year, right? The high priest, right? And he, if he's the only one that sees it, what good is that, right? Yeah. That's, yeah. So I think they probably brought it out on special occasions. I have a little scoop. Everybody gets a bite of manna, right? Well, I mean, Jesus says we get some of the hidden manna, so I don't know. Maybe we get a bite. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't really have a big opinion on that. There's not any data for me to go off of. possibility. 
I'm not, I'm not filling my cords yet. You could read ahead if you want. <laughs> it's a possibility yeah, that that's what he could be referring to. So where is the physical manna placed? It's placed in the Ark of the Covenant, which is before the Lord. That's where it's at. That's where it was. It's not there no more, obviously, because the temple's gone, right? What could be in the Ark of the Covenant, but it's technically, and I guess technically anywhere is before the Lord, right? Because he's all present, right? But So if the Ark exists and it hasn't been filled, right, then the manna could be in there, okay? All right, so now this is getting to what she was asking. So Second Maccabees, this had been a book that Jeremiah, I mean that John was familiar with. Second Maccabees is part of the Septuagint. It's part of that Greek translation of the Old Testament. This is an, an intertestamental book, okay? Um, I don't think it's canonical, meaning that I don't think it bears authority, but I think it holds information, okay? That would be in your Catholic Bible, your Greek Orthodox Bible, your Russian Orthodox Bible, okay? But they still do not consider it canonical. They call it deuterocanonical because they give it one little step underneath the scripture. Canonical, meaning it measure does it or does not measure. A, a canon would be a measuring rod. It's an old, lat, old Latin term. So it measures up or it does not measure up. So if it's canonical, it would mean that it's on the same status of scripture, it's not canonical, then it's not at the same status of scripture. It's his, in my opinion, it's like historical, cultural would be a better place. That's where I would place it. So it has value. It informs, but it doesn't necessarily always determine like what I would have scripture say. I'd give scri if scripture con contradicted this, I'd give scripture priority over this, right? Okay, so it's talking about um, the tabernacle, uh, the temple, uh, and its stuff in the tabernacle, which was transportable, uh, and it was contained in the writings that the prophet, being warned by God, that a prophet is Jeremiah, commanded that the tabernacle and the ark should follow with him. When he went forth into the mountain where Moses went up and beheld the heritage of God. So what mountain is that? The Mount Sinai. Yep. And Jeremiah came around, came and found a chamber in the rock. And there he bought, brought in the tabernacle and the ark and the altar of incense. And he made fast the doors. So he put it in a hole or a cave, a cavern at Mount Sinai and closed it up. Okay. And some of those that followed him with with him came that they might that came there that they may mark the way and could not find it. So it's supernaturally hidden, hidden manna. Okay. But when Jeremiah perceived it, he blamed them, saying, "Yes, and the place shall be unknown until God." gather the people again together and mercy comes. Okay. <laughs> okay. 
It just, this is just data that they have. This is like when he says hidden manna, this is a potential passage that he could be drawing off of. So where is the hidden manna? Yeah, manna is hidden on Sinai, but unknown until the gathering, until mercy comes, till Christ comes, right? And then this is Second Baruch 28.9. This is another intertestamental book. Okay. Um, and it says, and it will happen at that time that the treasury of manna will come down again from on high and they will eat of it in those years because these are they who arrived at the consummation of time. So what's that talking about? The end times. So it's talking about the new heaven, new earth, right? That new state. Right, and basically, th this is a concept that the food we eat is heavenly food. It's manna. So, what is seen as the food of heaven? Manna, right? Oh man, yep, good. You're paying attention. Manna is seen as the food of heaven. Yeah, <laughs> man. <laughs> All right, okay, so now we're out of the intertestamental period, and we're coming into the New Testament, uh, Jesus' very words. Uh, he's having a discussion with the Pharisees in John 6.40. They, they say, the Pharisees, Sadducees said to them, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? They're testing him, right? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Okay, so they're borrowing this from Second Baruch. They're borrowing, you see what I mean? Their terminology is consistent with their, their time. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, right? Who gave the bread? We already decided that. The Lord did, right? But my father gives you the true bread from heaven, right? For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Okay? So now we're going from physical to metaphorical. Okay? We're switching. Right? We're going from a physical thing to a symbol. Okay? They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all, uh, we're jumping to 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4, okay? Same concept that we're tracing here. We went from physical to metaphorical from from a physical to a, uh, a symbol, a representation, okay? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, and I read this on Sunday, so later on in this passage, it's talking about meat sacrifice to idols and how they're sacrificed to demons. You remember that, right? Okay, so this is that context, okay? Which is the same context of the church, right, who are tempted to sacrifice meat to idols, right, and partaken 
Okay? Paul says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. The cloud is in reference to how did uh, the God lead the Israelites in the desert during the day? A cloud by day and a pillar of by night. What sea did they cross? They walked through on dry land. What sea was that? The Red Sea. Okay, so this is what this is all symbolizing. These are the things he's referencing. I don't have time to trace all those things, but those I want you to register those stories in your mind, those accounts, okay? And all were baptized in, into Moses in the cloud and into in the sea. And we all ate the same spiritual food, which is a reference to manna, yeah, okay? And all drank the same, the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Okay? And now in that same passage in John, we had both reference to manna, but we had reference to drink as well, didn't we? He said everyone who thirsts gets a drink, right? And they won't thirst again. Obviously not talking about physical thirstiness, because I'm still thirsty. So in 1 Corinthians 10, 16, we're going to jump ahead. It says the cup of blessing that we bless is not a participation in, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. And the bread represents who? Christ. And manna is represented by who? Christ, Jesus, the Lord, yeah. Same thing. So who is the embodiment of manna? Jesus is the embodiment of bread from heaven, right? It's Jesus. He embodies it, metaphorically. I mean, obviously, he's not, I mean, he's white, I guess, but if you look at some of the, his glorified mercy is he's white, right, shining, Yeah, I don't know what he looks like. He's no clue. John, and I don't want to know. <laughs> the olive skin, probably. So what do you guys think Jesus means by hidden manna? Now that we've gone through all this data, let's kind of just process it a little bit. Okay, so I, I, there's some validity to that. Christ is is partially hidden for sure, right? We see through a mirror dimly, but then we shall see face to face. So there's a partial hidden there, right? Right? Any other thoughts? I think that's stretching the analogy of hidden man a little bit, but yeah, no, you're you're putting it out there. That's fine. You're good. There are people searching for him, right? But he's, he's actively pursuing them. The Spirit of God is the one who convicts hearts of sin and draws men to repentance, right? They cannot find him on, on his own, on their own, right? 
Yeah, so the manna is hidden until Christ returns. Yeah, um, that could be one take of that, or it could be revealed when you find Jesus. That would be another take. Um, um, it could be a, a stage revealed in the sense that you're going to get some of the hidden manna when you see him and when you're in the glorified heaven. That's that whole idea when we see him, we shall be like him. So that's that full Right, because remember, manna is about sustenance. It's about wholeness. It's about finding the day-to-day life-giving force of God. Right, and He says, "I am the bread of life." Right, so these are all things that are coming into this. Right, there is the fact that that manna, the physical manna, is somewhere. I mean, whether it got pillaged and some guy was like, "Oh, this is good," right? Or whether it's hidden away, like it says in Maccabees, Second Maccabees, uh, and that it will be that Jeremiah the prophet was speaking prophetically, and that it will be revealed in the end times. That is a possibility, and that so those people are going to get some of that. That I mean, that's that's a possibility. You can't just rule it out because it seems unlikely, right? I, I like the spiritual metaphorical better, but that's because I'm a Westerner. Go ahead. Right, we don't, f- they're partially hidden. We don't have full uh, understanding, yeah? So, um, so I think we basically have a couple of different, three major options. So the physical manna in a pot hidden away by Jeremiah somewhere could be revealed. Could be, it fits the text. Uh, I don't necessarily put a lot of stock in that, but it fits the text. The partaking of relationship with Jesus, who is the bread of life and the bread of communion, in which we now partake partially. That's a big statement. That's a slight, like a long-run Paul statement. But in heaven, believers will partake of it fully at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Okay? Okay? It will be fully revealed at that time. So it's hit partially hidden now. And it will be fully revealed at that time. It could mean that. That's probably the one I prefer. But because also it fits in contrast to the Feast of Idols that he's addressing there, right? He says, don't worship idols. Don't go to their feast, right? And remember, they have to, to be part of that community and to fa- fa- ba- sell and trade. They have to what? Go to the feasts. Be part of it, right? In a sense. Take on that identity. Take on that name. Okay? And Jesus says, don't do that. Right? I got a better one. I got a better feast for you. It's the hidden manna. Right? And the last one is it's reference to the marriage supper of the Lamb and the food of heaven being our sustenance at the confirmation of time. Right? So that's that second Baruch passage. Um, it does fit. Um, but just... Given those three, I think John and Jesus may have all of these in mind, but since this is the revelation of Jesus, I think they would give preference to number two, that long one I read. Any questions, thoughts, comments? Manna, tasty. Tastes like coriander. Like, I'm missing some slides. Bonus one. There you go, maybe. Yeah, we'll get some of that. 
<laughs> no, I'm fucking. It'd be cool to make all the connections, though, right? And it's a reward. It's a gift. It's something we're supposed to look forward to. And I think part of that is that the manna, like those given sustenance for the day, right? Because that's part of that whole theme of manna. But yet in heaven, all my sustenance, all my needs will be taken care of. I know, it's going to be a lot. But heaven's big. I mean, new heaven, new earth is a big place, so. The, the introverts will be able to be like in the introvert spot and uh, the loud people will be in the loud spot. So. <laughs> Just like you're at church. I know we have loud spots in the back and quiet spots in the front. Okay, so what is the gift of the white stone? This is fun. All right, white stone. Any guesses before we get started? Sonny's like reading the notes. Yeah, I guess. No. <laughs> All right. A white stone. Well, there's no biblical reference point for white stone other than <laughs> Revelation 2.17. So maybe this will be a short discussion. I don't know. Um, so what do we do when we don't have a lot of biblical data? What do we do? When we don't <laughs> No, we don't make things up. You're such a... <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess somebody maybe made it up. I don't know. No, we look at cultural context, okay? So, you know, we're dealing in a text. We look at immediate context, which is like the verses surrounding the text. Then we look at biblical context, which would be like it in the New Testament, and then like it in the Old Testament. And then when we still don't, and I mean, we're always looking out in these realms as well. But when we really f are lacking data, then we got to go, our circle keeps getting bigger, right? So, and then we're starting to ask ourselves, okay, is John making an assumption and assuming that we know what a white stone is all about, right? And we don't have cultural reference for a white stone. And in some ways, we are missing some cultural reference for a white stone. So I'm going to build cultural reference for you for white stone. So the first one is white stones are used for voting for acquittal. So the Sanhedrin would vote with stones. They would have a white stone and they would have a black stone, right? A black stone is to indicate guilt. So we're giving, get given a white stone, right? Now, the term blackballed, ever hear of that? Comes from the white and black stones. This is a common thing in ancient culture. Greek culture, which is one of the first culture, cultures that voted, used white and black stones. And they would throw them in the pot and then they would count how many black stones are there? How many white stones are there? Okay? So this is common in both Hebrew, Greek, and Roman culture. So this is so cool because it's a symbol that God has forgiven you. He's acquitted all your sins. Here's your white stone. You are forgiven. Isn't that cool? That is such a cool, cool blessing there. 
but, but white stones were also used as for admission to special occasions. So you get a white stone, if you have a white stone, the right shape or whatever, I guess, and you give it, you get in the door, right? You get in the theater, you get to go to the show, right? You get to see the movie. And so it is an admission to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Well, and it's having this marriage supper of the Lamb admission ties it back to what are we doing at the marriage supper of the Lamb? Right? And it's communion, it's it's not that that's the only thing we're going to get to eat, but I bet you manna will be on the menu. <laughs> yes, yes, because you got the 12 fruits for each season. Got good variety going on. <laughs> A- and they all go excellent with manna. Yes. <laughs> yes. So it's this admission, right? So we've got acquittal. We've got admission, right? Into uh, the new heavens, new earth, admission into the, the uh, <sighs> supper of the land. And then we've got this Jewish tradition, which is really interesting, that they held, and this is probably not true, but it's in John's thinking and things, is that precious stones fell with the manna, okay, right? And then that ties to the high priest has precious stones with names on them, the names of the 12 tribes, actually, engraved on them. And he wears them, okay? And he wears them to bear them before the Lord, okay? So now we have precious stones. What? I don't know if any of I'd have to go back and look at the stones. I don't. I think one of them was white, but I can't remember. There was a list. Yeah. Um, but he pulled them before God. And, and the part of the reason we pull that in there is because they have what written on them? Names and this stone has a new name written on it that no one knows except the one who gets the stone and God, right? Right, and we're going to get to that name stuff here in a minute, but we got to finish this up. So, the white stone also reinforces the idea of manna as a heavenly reward since the Septuagint that's what LXX stands for is Septuagint, okay. In and it's uh, because the, it's LXX, it's the number for 52, I believe. Is that the Roman numeral? 70? There we go. And that's how many translators were on the committee that translated the Hebrew Bible to Greek. That's why it's LXX. Okay? All right. In Numbers 11.7, remember we read that a l- little earlier, uh, it describes heavenly manna as resembling rock crystal or clear ice. Okay, and if you want to read that, you could get me to send you that commentary. I'll go buy it, but it would be in like so much sense, but you probably don't need to do it. All right, so they use substitute the bellium. They translate that as clear ice or rock crystal. So think of salt as white or rock candy. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> okay, rock candy. Uh, white also represents Jesus' righteousness, right? It's imparted to us. 
It shared with us a theme that is repeated at least 13 times just in the book of Revelation alone. It talks a lot about us being clothed in white robes, okay? And that will be actually in a, pr- uh, uh, a reward of one of the churches, right? All right. Any questions about the rock? Thoughts, comments? Biggest things is the rock is acquittal. The rock is admission. And the rock resembles or could resemble manna. Okay. <laughs> I don't get that reference. So. Oh, the rock. Now, okay, now I get it. Yeah, you're so funny. <laughs> I don't think it resembles him at all. <laughs> I don't. You're doing good. You're getting in there. Well, we're going to have a video in a second. So it'll be great. All right. A new name. No one knows except you and God. No one knows except you and God. So I'm not going to tell you. No, you, it's like a secret between you and God. It's like this, this phrase drips with, I know we don't like this word, but it drips with intimacy, right? Closeness. It's just a secret between you and God. And it's like, I don't want to say pet name, but kind of, kind of like his pet name for you. Like his name of endearment, right? Only you and him share share a name or share this name. I think it is way cool. I mean, that I think that's just awesome. That's like that's how tight God wants to be with you in heaven, right? So, but the name I will probably have to do with God's presence with you. Okay, I think it will be personalized to each individual. Right, so it's not going to be some generic thing. It's going to be something. Yeah, I I have, I don't know. I have no idea. I mean, it's going to be personal. That's the whole point. Turn to Numbers 6.22 or look here, and it says, The Lord spoke to Moses, and we're we're just going to go through some name theology, the study of God's name and in relation to us. Okay, so we're going to think through that a little bit. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, speak to the Aaron and his sons. Aaron and his sons are priests. Yep, okay, good. Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. We all know that really well. But I don't know if we're always familiar with this next verse which it says, so shall you put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. The name is going well on the people. And I would suggest to you that the name of God is on every single one of us. Revelation 3.12 says this quite clearly. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God and the new Jerusalem, which comes down out from my God out of heaven and my own new name. (laughs) 
I got these names, man. And by grace, right? All these names written on us. <laughs> you're not saved by grace, though. That's all right. God always. So, naming, then, is a way that God is blessing us, denoting presence, right? But naming is also denotes ownership, right? We do things with all, we do this with all things, right? We put names on all tools. We put names in all books. We put names on all toys, right? God puts his name on his people. You are a person of God. He put his name on you. Yeah, look at, well, look at the bottom of our foot to see if we see a name, right? God puts his name on our foreheads. What's permanent marker? Finally. Ugh. Hey, who's got my hat? Look, I'm Woody. Howdy, howdy, howdy. Ah-ha, uh-huh, ah-ha. Uh-huh. Give me that. Say there, lizard and stretchy dog. Let me show you something. It looks as though I've been accepted into your culture. Your chief, Andy, inscribed his name on me. Wow! With permanent ink, too! Well, I must get back to repairing my ship. Don't let it get to you, Woody. Uh, let what? Inscribed his name on me. With permanent ink! <laughs> In my mind, I remember, I somehow remember him writing his name on Andy's. I, I, on, on a Woody's foot, yeah, but I could never find a spot where he actually wrote it on there. I think it's just already on there. But then you remember the one scene where uh, Woody is like a collector's toy? That's like in the future movie, and it gets erased. That's kind of creepy. But but it's like that, you f- you felt that tie, right? And, and I just want to say that God's name is written on you, and it's with tattoos. I mean, it, it can't be erased. There's no taking it away, right? You bear Yahweh's name. And then you're going to get a new name on your emission stone. Your name is written in the book of life, right? But that's different. That's a book. This is you, right? And we will talk about the book of life. It'll be a whole topic. It's a separate book, and it's one of the books opened. But, but yeah. But... But this is you have the name on you, right? Uh, Revelation 14.1 talks a little bit about this name putting on. And this is in reference to the, I'm probably shifting the view of OBS around.
So Revelation 14.1 is an example of this. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood, stood the Lamb, with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Now, this is 144,000 Jews, which God has called out, but it doesn't disqualify us from receiving God's name as well. Okay, um, Yes. Yes, if we're trying to do some chronology, it would be after the rapture. If we're pre-trip, they were not believers before the rapture. That is correct. Okay, but this is just illustrative. I guess it would be the best way is that God writes names on people's heads. Okay, for ownership. We already read all the way back in Deuteronomy, right, that they say the Aaronic blessing and God, th those people who receive that ironic blessing bear whose name? God's, Yahweh's name, right? Uh, this concept is even there in Genesis in that we're created in the image of God. So we bear his image, we bear his name. Everybody bears that name, though. Does that make sense? Even if it's broken, right? This is a possession name. He's put this name on the 144,000 to say, those are mine, right? Just like Andy wrote his name on the bottom of Buzz Lightyear and Woody to say, these are mine. Just like you write it on your tool or in your book that you loan away to let them know this is loaned. And every time you use it and you see my name, I want you to remember it's mine, right? And so I know the 144,000 is a little confusing because it's just that. But I would say that the naming goes beyond these particular people. Yes. This John is seeing this as a vision. They're marked because God is telling Satan they're his. <laughs> yeah, I, I have no idea whether they were physically marked or not. It's very possible. Right. Right. So, so this is coming from the phylacteries. You ever heard what you know what a phylactery is? This is about the big bone. So the Jews wear phylacteries, and they in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy it says to take the word of God and bind it around your head, the forehead, and to bind it to your right hand, right? And so the Jews, the application of that, they would write scripture my, my minusculely and bind boxes with God's word to their right hand and to their forehead. This is where this imagery is coming from, okay? That, that's, that's where it is. That's, that's what's happening. Whether or not it's going to be an actual physical Yahweh <laughs> in Hebrew on their heads, I don't, I, I don't know. It is in contrast to another mark. Yes. So Satan, who's always making counterfeits, wants to name his own as well. Okay. So, uh, and that's and in the same passage of Revelation 14, where he says he marks the 144,000, right? It talks about Satan mocking 
his own. Right? And another angel, a third followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in the image and receives the mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of the God's wrath, poured out full strength in the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented in fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. So this is in contrast. Does that make sense? Satan's counterfeiting. God's already named. Okay. So whose name do we bear? We will bear God's name, Christ's name, right? Right? That's the name we bear. If we confess Jesus as Lord, believe in all that God raised him from the dead, we bear his name. Okay? We are his. It's been inscribed. As the dinosaur says, with permanent ink. Right? Okay? Revelation 23, 3 through 4. No longer will there be anything accursed. But the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. This is talking about the new heavens and new earth. And his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. This is why I say it's more than just that 144,000. Because it's all, this is, they, it's talking, this verse is talking about all the servants of God, everybody. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's that, it's that, I mean, it's a special image, a special vision for the 144,000. This is at the very end where, but everybody's got, right. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads, meaning he, they all belong to him. It's this idea of belonging is really what's trying to be communicated. And then, the, don't want to forget what this whole started all this, is that we also have a special name, right? Which... We share only with God. It's the top secret. I want to know. <laughs> so there we go. There's the ma a hidden manna, uh, the, the white stone, and the new name, and you bear God's name. Lots of good, fun stuff. Any thoughts, questions? Man, I'm thrilled with an hour. It's pretty good. I'm sure I get to bed. <laughs> <laughs>